Good morning. It's our habit to take up an offering for the poor in our midst at the end of our services whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This morning, though, we're going to take up an offering for the poor somewhere else. That is in Indianapolis at one of our sister churches. This is a special one-time love offering that we're going to take up for them. They are moving into a larger facility, which we are praising God for, and they are very excited about, but this doesn't have a sound system. They need to purchase one, and we've been helping them know what to get, and we've come up with a very modest system. If you know anything about sound systems, you know that $1,500 does not get you very much, but that is what that will get them by for quite some time, we think. And so that's what we're trying to raise this morning to bless them with. So please give generously to that at the end of our service. Well, this is the second in a series of sermons on the ecumenical creeds. What's a creed? Well, creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. So a creed is a summation of doctrine of, that, a, that a group of people believe. That's a creed. What is ecumenical? Ecumenical is one of those fancy words, and it just means that uh, it, just, it just relates to the, the relationship between the churches, between churches on a grand scale. So an ecumenical creed is a creed that summarizes the core beliefs of the churches, that throughout history, these are the beliefs that the the churches have agreed to be true and essential. So the ecumenical creeds are, have come into our worship as of late on a regular basis, and so there's been a need to justify their presence here. I tried to do some of that last, a couple of weeks ago, last time I preached, but there's also a need to explain certain statements in the creed. So that's what this series is about. So that when we say them, we know what we're saying, why we're saying it, why it's true. There's, there's a number of statements in the creeds that I think we have a pretty good idea of. Not, not that we've exhausted them, certainly. We never will. That's the beauty of the Trinity is it's inexhaustible. And that's what the creeds express, the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when we say the words, I believe in God the Father Almighty, we, I think, because we've had a conference about that doctrine, and because it's at the core of most of the teaching and the work and worship of this church, we have a decent idea, at least, of what we mean when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. But there are other statements in the creeds that we don't as yet fully understand like we need to. Some of, the, some of them actually, we, we think we know what they mean, and they mean something else. I Descended into hell is a classic example of this. It's not even like immediately clear what it means, or that it seems to mean something, but I believe it best understood means something else than what it actually says. <laughs> but it's a poetic way of expressing what it actually means. And if you come on Good Friday, I intend, Lord willing, to open that up for us and to preach the doctrine of the atonement from he descended into hell. But there are statements, one or two statements in the creeds that, that really just make us very uncomfortable, me included. And the, uh, the Holy Catholic Church, I believe the Holy Catholic Church is one of those statements. And so this morning we're going to start a series on that phrase, the Holy Catholic Church. And we're going to try to come to terms with this word Catholic. We have to start by asking what does it mean? What does this word Catholic mean? Well, let's begin by considering the type of word that it is, the part of speech that it is. This is very important. It's at the center of the confusion. What makes us squirm about it? We have to understand, first of all, what type of word it is. Catholic, as it's used here in this creed, is an adjective. It's an adjective. What's an adjective? It's a modifier. It modifies some other word. It modifies a noun. The noun is church. And Catholic is not a noun equal to church. Now, 
The reason, of course, that this phrase makes us squirm is because we inevitably think that when we say Holy Catholic Church, that we must mean the Roman Catholic Church. Right? That's what I, every time I say this phrase in, in the creed, every, every week I have to go through this routine in my mind where I remind myself what, I'm, what I don't mean. And I don't like having to do that. That's what this sermon is about. And it's important to know that it's not a capital C, Catholic. It's an adjective. It's not a proper noun. Rome has elevated it to a proper noun. They have trademarked it and have used it to browbeat us as Protestants and to intimidate us and to make us feel very small and very outside of the faith. And I aim to show this morning that, it's, that it doesn't mean that at all. It's a glorious doctrine that we must hang on to and, it, and rightly understood will become very tasty in our mouths when we say this word Catholic. It's not a noun, it's an adjective. Adjectives modify, they enhance or qualify the words that they modify. So what is the noun? It's church. And that means an ecclesial community, which by itself would not be sufficient in this creed to make clear the doctrine of the church. To just say the word church is a general term that could mean it just about anything. As long as you had a community of people who believe something, you can rightly refer to them as a church. But when you put the word Catholic in front of it, it, it qualifies it, it modifies it, it explains what we mean when we say the word church. So what is the meaning of Catholic? Well, any good dic- dictionary will tell you that it simply means universal. Our Greek and Latin expert among us, Josh Congrove, told me after the first service that it quite literally means throughout the whole. This church is a church that is throughout the whole. The whole of what? The whole of the world. That's what this word, church, this word Catholic means. Universal. It's gone out throughout the world. It's important to realize, though, that this is not, Catholic is not in the Bible. It's not a scriptural word. It's a theological word like the word Trinity. Do you know the word Trinity is not in the Bible? It's a word that the church has coined in order to summarize important biblical truths, biblical doctrines, and to protect them from those who want to teach something contrary to scripture. So very important to do this. The church has the right and the necessity of doing this from time to time with important concepts in Scripture that are, being, that are controversial, that people have different opinions about and are teaching those opinions. It's important for the church to protect those, and so one of the ways she does that is by coining new words to define what Scripture teaches. Trinity, clearly a biblical concept, not a biblical word. Catholic, I, I aim to show this morning, clearly a biblical concept, not a biblical word. It's a concept expressed, though, throughout Scripture in many ways, and especially, especially in the New Testament. One of the most obvious places we find this idea of Catholicity expressed in Scripture is in the first chapter of the book of Acts. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. The first chapter of Acts. Before his ascension into heaven, Jesus said to his disciples... So after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, there was this period of time in which he met with his disciples, appeared to them, and he taught them many things, especially about the church and about her Catholicity. And here's what he said to them. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. This is the Catholicity of the church perfectly expressed in Scripture. The Christian church, which was founded, if you remember back from a couple weeks ago, founded upon Peter's confession of faith, Matthew 16, is prophesied here by Jesus to be something that is going to go out 
It's not going to stay in Jerusalem where Peter and the apostles are. It's going to go out. It's going to go out, first of all, to, um, it's going to start in Jerusalem, which is the place, the birthplace of this faith, the, where the events surrounding Jesus' life and ministry took place. It's going to start there. They're going to wait till the Spirit empowers them, and then it's going to go out under with his power to the surrounding region of Judea, and it's going to extend beyond there. By the way, Jewish Judea. It's going to go beyond Judea, though, to the half-Jewish regions of Samaria, and it's going to go beyond there to the Gentile lands all the way encompassing the globe. This is the Catholicity of the church. Now, this is something completely remarkable. This is completely unprecedented. From the first, it was not like this. We read in the Psalms that God looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there were any who were righteous, if there were any who sought after God. And there were not any. Behold, there was none, not even one. So that's very opposite of this idea of the gospel having gone out, right? It's the complete opposite. The gospel has no place. There's no true faith. There is no belief. There's no love of God in the world. That's what God sees. And into this, rather than destroying all of humanity, which is perfectly within his right to do as a holy God and a just God, he decides, rather, to elect a man to salvation. To elect Abram, one of these evil men who did not seek after him. He looked down upon the world and he chose, because he just decided to, this man, Abram, who he changed his name to Abraham. The Chaldean, a heathen, a pagan, and he, he called him, he gave him faith, he credited to that faith righteousness, so there was none righteous, no, not one, and, then he, and he gave Abraham faith, and he said that faith is as good as righteousness. I consider Abraham to be righteous, one righteous man in the world. And then he, he promised this man to make of him a great nation, so he promised him many descendants, and that he would give those descendants a land, that will be full of blessing and abundance. And he said also that he would be their God and they would be his people. And so we have a church. But it's a church that follows, as you see, very strict lines of race. It's a church also that's bound to a very specific location, a geography. It has a land, and it has a city in that land, which is the center of worship, and it has a place in that city, which is the center of worship, the place of God's presence exclusively. And that is the temple in Jerusalem. And that's the center of their life and worship. It's where God promised to meet with them. So this is the start of the Jewish race and the start of the Jewish religion, and it has a continuity with the Catholic religion, the New Covenant, New Testament faith. Because it's the same God that elected Abraham that we worship today. And Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. Jesus, the God that we worship as God, our Savior, was a Jew. And the events of his life took place right at the center of this Jewish religion. So the Jewish church was very much a national church, not a Catholic church. Now, that's not entirely true. Catholicity was promised under the types and the shadows of that old covenant. Back from the beginning, Genesis 12, when God called Abraham and set him apart and promised him these things, he tagged on this promise. Listen to this. Genesis 12, verse 3, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a Catholic promise that God made to Abraham. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
This promise would not be fulfilled, though, until the age of Messiah. There are other early evidences of the truth of this promise, though. Isaiah, who's called the evangelical prophet because he more than any other spoke of the coming Christ, of the coming Messiah, he prophesied that one day in Isaiah 11, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now look around you. Has that happened yet? No, it hasn't. But it has been happening. We're here, right? We believe this is a church. We believe. Isaiah prophesied that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He also preached this invitation to the surrounding nations, Israel's enemies. Listen to this. In Isaiah 45, he said, Turn to me and be saved. In God's name, he said this. Turn to me, says God, and be saved all the ends of the earth. Then, of course, there's the prophet Jonah, who at God's command preached the gospel of repentance to the heathen city of Nineveh. He didn't even want to do it. God commanded it, and he did. They repented. Then there's, of course, Rahab of Jericho, a Canaanite, and Naaman, the Syrian, and Ruth, the Moabitess. You could probably think of other examples, but these are the ones that came to mind. All of these turned from paganism to join this national church of Israel and to start worshiping the true God. But still, this Jewish church was essentially a national church, not a Catholic church. Or rather, it was a Catholic church hidden under types and shadows that was waiting for its time to arrive, its day to dawn. Either way you look at it, true Catholicity throughout the whole is primarily a feature of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And then at the moment of Jesus' death, what happened in the temple? Remember this? A very significant thing happened at the moment of Jesus' death in the temple. The center of the Jewish religion, something changed. And that change was, that act, was this divine, supernatural rending, ripping of the veil that separated the holiest of holy places from the rest of the world. This is a huge curtain. Only God could have done this tearing, and it was torn from top to bottom to prove this fact. Symbolic, the fact that God was making an announcement to the world, a happy birthday announcement to the world that the Jewish exclusive system of worship is done. It is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the eternal high priest. This worship of the Jews had Bob smiling. He's, he's our resident Jew, but he's smiling because he knows the truth of this and the glory of it. Jesus is the eternal high priest. There's not a need for another one. He's the ultimate sacrificial lamb. Again, there's no need for another sacrifice. He's the perfect and true tabernacle and temple. There's no need for any other. And God made this clear at the moment of his death when all was accomplished and fulfilled. Jesus described it this way to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman a Samaritan woman. He said this, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. The Father. Worship the Father in spirit, that is, full of the Holy Spirit, and in truth, that is, Through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Through, apart from whom, no one can come to the Father. Trinitarian worship is Catholic worship. And this is something, certainly the Trinity existed from from eternity. 
but is fully revealed at this time, in this place, and in this way. This new way of worshiping the true God could now happen anywhere. Location would now be, from now on, from that moment on, a matter of indifference. What's required for this new worship to happen? Well, Jesus said, Where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Before God dwelt in the temple, that was the the demonstration of his presence. The symbol of his presence with the people was in the temple, and particularly in the Ark of the Covenant, which was in that most holy place. And the, the veil of the temple being torn in two symbolized for all of us this complete and radical change, which Jesus puts this way, from now on, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Not only could worship happen anywhere, it can happen with anyone. Not only, from now on, it would not just be limited to the Jews, the special privilege of the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, but listen to this. Ephesians chapter 2, one of the most important passages concerning the Catholicity of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, so he's speaking to you, you're a Gentile, most of you, apart from Bob, maybe one or two more. You, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, unclean, remember that was the distinguishing mark between those who were Jews and who weren't. The descendants of Abraham were circumcised and the Gentiles were not. You who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups, Gentiles and Jews, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. What was the enmity? Which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So circumcision was a barrier. That's done away with. And now also the laws and ordinances that he had given his people There was all these ordinances that separated the people, that set them apart, and made it clear that they were distinct. Couldn't eat pork. That was a way God showed that these people were different. That his people were exclusive. That he had exclusive rights to them, and they to him. That's done away with. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And this is a quote from the Old Testament, a prophecy. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, the Jews and the Gentiles, have our access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, note that word, the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Where's the building? Where's the temple now? Wherever two or three are gathered in his name is the temple. And the people are the stones being built together. We are the church. The church is not in these 
concrete walls. The church is us, together, gathered in his name to worship the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The gospel has come to us Gentiles and has given us access to God equal to that of the Jews. This means that we can be confident because together with them we are being built up into the temple, the dwelling of God by the Spirit. This gives us confidence to know that Jesus Christ is here right now. Jesus Christ is here with us. We're gathered in his name. We have the Holy Spirit. He is here with us. And we are now in the presence of him, of the Lamb, and of all the holy angels, and of all the saints who have died and gone before us, who are worshiping the Father through Christ and the Spirit. And we are joining them in that work. Christ is here with us. And all of that is expressed in this word, Catholic. That's what Catholic means. Universal. Trinitarian. New covenant worship. But it gets better. God in the gospel not only abolishes distinctions between nationalities and ethnicities, between geographies and certain places, he, he does not discriminate either between any class of person. All are equally welcome to be reconciled to God by faith in his Son. Galatians 3.26, you know this well. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, no more national church. There is neither slave nor free man. There's no distinction between whatever station you find yourself in in life, whatever income level you live at. And also, there's neither male nor female. Whatever sex God has made you is no barrier to you having full access through Jesus Christ to God your Father. Equal to mine, equal to any man's, if you have faith. This is the glorious doctrine of Catholicity. The strong, the tempted, and the weak are one in Jesus now. I've never fully appreciated that song. I like the music. I even like what I thought the sentiment was, but I, now I think I know better why I like it. And I asked Phil to sing it, to change the closing hymn so we could sing it this morning. The strong, the tempted, and the weak are one. One man built up together into a holy dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This is happy birthday to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is Catholicity. Whosoever. You could think of that word as a substitute. (laughs) The holy whosoever church. And the... Because the gospel is for everybody, whosoever, Jesus sent his apostles out into the world to preach it, to preach the gospel, because this is good news for everyone. He said to them in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And this is exactly what they did. But in obedience to Christ, they first waited in Jerusalem, like he told them, until the Holy Spirit came upon them and gave them power to go out and to preach. And let's look at that account. It's very instructive for us. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. 
Now, when they heard this, are the first words, that means that refers back to the, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes, falls upon the apostles, and Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, stands up in the midst and preaches the first sermon of the church. And that's what it's referring to. Now, when they heard that sermon, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added, note that word, about 3,000 souls. Added. Added to what? To the church. This is why we say in the creed, I believe a holy Catholic church and not holy Catholic gospel. The gospel goes out into all the world in order to bring men in, into the church. Speaking in a parable, Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 14. The master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house might be full. The gospel goes out to the highways and the hedgerows in order to call people in to God's house, whose house we are, the church, the people, into fellowship with believers. The gospel's call is not just to repent, but to repent and be baptized. Baptism is the initiation rite or sign of entry into the church. Whenever there is a true gospel presentation, there will be with it a call to church membership, to be baptized into the church. Wherever the church goes, there the gospel goes. Wherever the gospel goes, there the church goes. They are not to be separated. The Bible knows of no such thing as a lone ranger or Marlboro man Christian who gets saved and then continues to commune with God out on the range at the Grand Canyon. Here is where we commune and meet with God, with one another, wherever two or three are gathered. And the sign of that entrance into that gathering is baptism. Peter, in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 22, puts it this way. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, right? Fervently love one another from the heart. The purpose of having been purified, having been justified, having been saved, is for a sincere love of the brethren, the church. Wherever the gospel goes, there goes the church. At the end of Acts 2, it shows that they were, all those who had been added to their number, had kept feeling a sense of awe, and and those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Wherever the apostles went... This is their example. The the quintessential missionaries of the church were church men. They were not not having a go-kart ministry to troubled teens. Not that that is out of the purview or possibility of the church. But 
they would have been sure to have in, insisted that that be part of the church. But that not be Lone Ranger approach to missions. Wherever they went, they stayed there long enough. Whenever they had success with their preaching, they stayed there long enough to see that this new group of people who believed had a shepherd that he had raised, that the apostles had raised up and trained and put, laid hands on that they could entrust these souls to. They established churches wherever they went. Now this brings us to an important distinction that Scripture makes, and we have to do this quickly. We'll hopefully get more into it later. But I want to introduce you to a distinction that Scripture makes concerning the church, one that must be carefully observed. The Bible speaks in two ways about this Catholic church. Sometimes it speaks of it in an ultimate sense, as it does in Ephesians 5, where it says Christ loved, loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is the church in an ultimate, cosmic Complete sense. The, all the elect in their, in their state of perfection. Finished work. The church. It speaks of the church in this sense. This is, there's no hypocrites in her ranks. She's pure and spotless. There's no false believers. This is the church invisible. If you know these terms. This is the church invisible. This is God's view of the church. This is not something that we can see except by faith, trusting God that she exists. But then it speaks of the church visible. It, It speaks at other times of churches like ours. The visible body of believers wherever they gather on earth. The Lord was adding to their number, it says in Acts 2, and that's a reference to an actual group of people that you could see. And it also says um, in Ephesians 4 that God gave to the church some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Here again is, is he's speaking about the visible church. He's not speaking on this cosmic level because that church has no need of pastors. You don't need me. When you get there. When she, when she is complete. When the chaff has been separated from the wheat. And that's one of the reasons why this distinction is very important. Because at the core of it is how, helps us understand how some can fall away after having tasted of the Spirit. Our church is not that ultimate church. Now that we are connected, we are certainly connected, integrally related to that church. This is a church that Christ has instituted and, and not man. But we are not that ultimate perfect bride of Christ. We are serving her. And God, for that work of service, has given you men like me, women like Mary Lee, to help build us all up in the faith. More on that later. For now, I just want us to see that the apostles weren't just preachers who thought it their job merely to preach a gospel that calls people to something cosmic and personal only. But also, and very much connected to that, they called men to join themselves to the society of the faithful by baptism and to submit to those in authority over them in the Lord and to sincerely love the brethren. They were churchmen. The gospel is a gospel of the church. Finally, in light of these things, consider the aim and the scope of a Catholic church. What is the church's objective? You've heard Stephen Baker. It's a wonderful way of putting it. 
total world domination is the objective of the church. Remember what Isaiah prophesied concerning the church? The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And though we look around us and we see many reasons to not believe that and to be discouraged in our work as we see the darkness of our day, we can trust in God's promises that, as he said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not overpower it. Now, we think of this as a defensive strategy, don't we? A reason to sort of circle the wagons and hunker down until the storm passes. But this promise, as Stephen has helpfully taught us, is not that at all. It is an offensive strategy. (laughs) It's a promise that guarantees the offensive success of the church so that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Paul puts it this way in the second letter to the Corinthians, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Always triumph in every place. The gospel is triumphing and it will triumph. He says it in, later in that letter, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, the gates of hell. Psalm 72, which has been versified for singing back in 1912 this way. Christ shall have dominion over land and sea. Earth's remotest regions shall his empire be. They that wilds inhabit, shall their worship bring. Kings shall render tribute. Nations serve our king. This is the power of the gospel, and all of this is incorporated, expressed in this one word, Catholic. The scope of the gospel, the triumph of the gospel and of the church. Now, this broad overview of Catholicity forms the first and most basic definition of what we mean by this word Catholic. There's a lot, 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 lot more to say. And Lord willing, we will have opportunity to study it. The gospel is all... But when we say the creed, think this. The gospel is for all creation, all nations, all stations of life, and its goal and sure outcome is total world domination. I believe the Holy Catholic Church. <laughs> now, this, this is a preview of the question that necessarily follows from that doctrine. Who rightly lays claim to this title, Catholic? And what, that, that was the sermon I was going to preach this morning. Because of Rome and her claim, we know the Most of us know the claim of Rome that she alone is the Catholic Church and that outside of her gates there is no possibility of salvation. And that we are excommunicated from her and therefore not savable unless we repent and come inside. And so we have to we have to fight for this word Catholic, unfortunately. There are some words that are too precious to let go of. People, heretical sects, heterodox groups, commandeer biblical words and theological terms all the time. Not all of them are necessary to fight for. Catholic is necessary. Our creed is at stake. The nature of the church is at stake. The whole question of our conscience before God, whether we can count ourselves truly believers and a part of the true church is at stake. Very important. We'll have to go carefully through the doctrines of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church another time. But let me leave us with a couple of applications because doctrine, as glorious as it is, is completely useless unless it's useful. We want to be 
doers of the word and not hearers only, right? Well, when we remember what I said a couple of weeks ago about the creeds. They function and have functioned in the history of the church as baptismal vows. The Apostles' Creed are, have, for the majority of the history, have been the baptismal vows. What's required to confess in order to be joined to the church. The core doctrines. And that each time we say things in those creeds, those, take those vows, we are obligating ourselves to certain, certain things, obligations. Words fail me. Um, so when we say, I believe in God the Father, we're obligating ourselves to this God and to a life of, that pleases him. And so it is when we say all of the phrases of the creed, we're obligating ourselves to certain actions. And what are the actions we obligate ourselves to when we confess these, this doctrine of Catholicity every Sunday? Well, it's something we don't like and we are not good at and are afraid of. Evangelism. I mean, is there anything more immediate that should be said about this doctrine that the gospel will go out, that it has come to us, that it's better to give than to receive, <laughs> that it, we ob- are obligated by, by being believers, by being recipients of the good news, that we proclaim the good news to the lost. Confident that it will have its effect, that the word of God will not go out, return to him void, but it will accomplish what it sets out to do. Well, did you notice on the screen this morning that there was, and and also Lucas's announcement, Easter Sunday is coming up, and it says at the bottom of the screen, invite your neighbors. Last year, we were disappointed. We were disappointed by how few of us had the faith to invite our neighbors to such an obvious day. When people still, to, still even today, have this basic sense of ob- being obligated to attend church on Easter Sunday. Let's capitalize on it, expecting God to bring about a great harvest of souls through the preaching of his word. And through the fellowship of the believers. Remember what it says in Corinthians? Where the passage, I think, where our name clear note comes from? It says that they will come into your midst and they will fall on their faces. Can someone quote it? Saying, surely God is among you. That is a paraphrase. This work of worship, the temple, is a wonderful place to encounter God. Because he's guaranteed to be here. And it's a place where non-believers can meet him and can fall on their faces, having the secrets of their hearts exposed and say, surely God is among you and that they will want to be joined with us. So let's bring our neighbors. But then there's also the Monroe County Fair. Now, very, we have a booth at the Monroe County Fair, and the, the purpose of the booth is evangelism. And I'm not good at evangelism, and you're not good at evangelism, but Michael Foster is good at evangelism. And we should all humble ourselves to be taught by Michael how to do it. Now, he doesn't produce great results, but he's good at doing it. He puts himself out there, he gets in people's way, he talks to them about Jesus Christ. And it's, it's easier than you think. And he can teach us and demonstrate for us how easy it is. It's better to give than to receive. Go to Michael. Sign up for your time at the booth. Say, Michael, you're going to have to help me. I'm afraid. And he'll say, oh, it's, it's not so hard. Let me show you. I'll, I'll, you just watch me do it a few times and trust me, you'll, you'll have the confidence to do this. Go to the fair. There's the 4th of July fireworks. Now we all bring our families and we sit 
up there in the corner. And then there's a whole bunch of other people down here on the playground that aren't from our church. And Jake Minsel, I think, was the only one who was like, ter- uh, who was, like troubled <laughs> by the discrepancy. And maybe there were others, but I know Jake was very troubled. And so he was going around making sure everyone felt welcome, making sure that they knew he was a pastor of this church, introducing himself to them and loving them. Let's not waste these moments. I put at the bottom of the screen for the Easter, and I said, invite your neighbors. And under there, I put this verse from the Gospels that says, look on the fields. They are white and ready for the harvest. This is, this is Catholicity. It's this belief that the fields are white and ready for the harvest. That your friends, that your neighbors, that your parents who don't believe, that your brothers and sisters who don't believe are just waiting for you to say something about it and to call them to believe. That the fields are white. That's what Jesus said. It's a, it's a statement of fact. The fields are white. So let's give ourselves to the work of evangelism. And there's much, much more to say about Catholicity at another time. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for the Catholicity of your gospel and of your church, that it would include even us, that you would have looked on your world in love and said it is not good that these people should perish and that you have brought the gospel even to us here in the ends of the world. Help us, Lord, as recipients of that gospel to have the faith that we need to confess your name before men, before all men, all creation, and to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that it is the power of God unto salvation. And would you, Father, be pleased to build your church and through it to transform the world and to fill it with the knowledge of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.